Greetings from the Classic City. I am Jamie Cheek. This is A View from the Couch. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And I have to admit, right from the start, it's been a busy week. Coming off of the holiday week and just trying to get everything lined up with work, it was hard, uh, near impossible actually, to uh, to record a podcast on Monday. So we'll start today by just a couple of thoughts about the game from last Saturday night against South Carolina. It was very encouraging. It's exactly what we talked about in the preview podcast last Thursday. What we needed to see from the dogs was improvement in the areas where they struggled so mightily against Mississippi State. The defense had big question marks. We got answers to that against South Carolina. The running game had big question marks after running for only eight yards against Mississippi State. The dogs ran all over South Carolina. But the problem with the South Carolina game, and honestly the problem with this week's game as well, is we don't know how much of what we're seeing on the field is indicative of Georgia's improvement and where they are as a team with a legitimate threat at quarterback or how much the opposing team is just terrible. And we won't know. And the biggest regret I think that I have about this season is that there's not a legitimate team to play at this point in the year. You know, looking back at the season, the schedule was so amazingly front-loaded. I mean, if you really look at Georgia's schedule, I think you have to say the Vandy game was is by far the easiest game of the year. I think South Carolina is the second easiest game of the year. So in a 10-game season, your two easiest games of the year happen back-to-back and at the end of the year. Now, Missouri was supposed to be played weeks ago, but obviously had to get rescheduled because of all the COVID issues. So I think Missouri, Kentucky, and Arkansas are kind of in a group there, kind of in that next tier. You know, so when you, you talk about the, the, the schedule, if you broke it down kind of in like quadrants, you've got Vandy, South Carolina and Tennessee, the teams that are absolutely the worst on Georgia's schedule. Um, and then you move into that Arkansas, Kentucky, Mississippi or Mississippi State and Missouri round. And then obviously that leaves Alabama, Florida and Auburn as, as kind of the top tier. Well, you played Alabama, Florida and Auburn three out of five games. And so it's just really, really difficult. I wonder, had Georgia's schedule been soft early and difficult late, and then you still get the quarterback change the way you did, uh, you just wonder how things might be different. You know, I've seen a lot of talk on message boards, you know, would Georgia, would Daniels have beaten Florida? Would Georgia, would Daniels beaten Alabama? Um, I have a hard time thinking that Georgia could have beat Alabama. And the more I play, I, I watch them play, the more they just seem like head and shoulders the best team in the country. And and that could change at any time. It could change this weekend. But Alabama looks like they're on a different level. Could Georgia have beaten Florida with Daniels at quarterback? I, yes, I believe that is true. I absolutely believe that is true. Because even watching that game, even in the podcast I recorded after that game, to me it was blatantly obvious that the opportunities on offense were there. And Georgia just completely fell apart and had no ability with Mathis or with a Hurt Bennett to do anything offensively. So it it just completely got away from Georgia offensively in that second half. And even though the defense buttoned it up in the second half, Georgia was never really a threat to get back in that game because you just didn't feel like they could put two drives together to go score a couple of times. So it was 
you know, it, it, it's all ifs and buts, and, you know, you, you can't do that. But at the end of the day, I believe that we have to just take what we're seeing for what it's worth. We have to say, okay, Georgia destroyed South Carolina, and it was a beat-up South Carolina team that's had COVID issues, that's had opt-outs, that's fired their coach during the middle of the season. And Georgia did to them exactly what Georgia needed to do to them. And so you can't take a lot from it. You can't draw a lot of conclusions from it. But what you can say is, and, and this is, I guess, a little bit of an indictment on the program this year in general, it's the first time we've seen them play like that. It's the first time this year the Dogs took an inferior opponent and beat them to death early, and at no point during the game were you worried. And, and that's what it should have been, and that's what a program at Georgia's level should be able to do that five or six times a year. You have to be able to play that way against the teams that you are far superior than so that all of the close games and all of those tense moments and all of those heroic plays happen against the best teams on your schedule. You don't, you know, obviously in a normal year, you'd have two or three cupcake games thrown in there, four if you count tech. Um, but, you know, when you really, when you look at it this season, this Georgia team would have played a lot better against Arkansas. This Georgia team, you know, with, I think, with a competent quarterback, this Georgia team puts Kentucky away early. And, and the Kentucky game looks a lot like the South Carolina game. Maybe not quite as high scoring, but as far as Georgia's ability to, to be up three or four scores in the second half and not really worry about the game, I think that's what you see. Um, Mississippi State, I think, is just an outlier, and I think that's what we'll see as we move forward, that that game, that offense, that gimmick was a lot more uh, indicative of just a single game and that you can't draw a whole lot of conclusions from it. So passing grades all the way around, you know, a lot of people said that JT Daniels had come back down to earth. Listen, Georgia's philosophy is to play great defense and run the football. Now, when a team takes away the ability for Georgia to run the football, to have a guy like JT Daniels back there who can make the throws, that is what Georgia needs. But do not mistake yourself. Do not trick yourself. If Georgia can run for 350 yards in a game, they are going to do it. They're not going to throw Kirby, Munkin. I don't know that there's an offensive coordinator in the country. If you can go out and rush for over 300 yards, who's going to say, nah, I don't want to do that. I'd rather put it in the air 35 or 40 times. You just running the ball is a much more controlled way to play football. It's the reason that it's the foundational piece of what offense was in the game for so long. And obviously the explosive passing game is a very important part of 2020 style college football. And you have to have that club in your bag, but you don't have to do that every single week. So throwing for 400 yards against Mississippi State was great. And Georgia against the teams that they will hopefully be competing with next year, uh, at the top of the college football world, when you're talking about having to go and outscore an Alabama and outscore a Florida or outscore a Clemson, as Georgia will potentially have to do in the first game of the season next year. When you talk about those type of opponents, you have to be able to score 30 or 40 points to win those games. But when you're playing the South Carolinas of the world, you turn around and you hand it back, you hand it off to whatever back is back there, control the game, win the game, win it convincingly, still throw when you need to. And Daniels, when he was asked to throw, he did a very good job. But the reality is JT Daniels needed to throw for 400 yards against Mississippi State, so he did. 
Georgia didn't need him to throw for 400 yards against South Carolina, and that is not an indictment on Daniels. It is absolutely the way Georgia should have approached this game, and we should see the same thing this weekend. So we'll get into the Vandy game a little bit. But that is a quick breakdown of my thoughts coming out of South Carolina. We're going to hop into the viewing guide, and then we're going to kind of progress through the podcast this week. But thank you so much for joining me today. Let's get going with this week's viewing guide. This week is kind of a strange week. If if I were going to give it a name, it would be, you know, Road Warriors because a lot of the top teams in the country, a lot of the teams that are still in the running for the playoff have road games this week against unranked teams. And so this is one of those weeks where either the best teams in the country will come out and play like the best teams in the country and we won't really see any kind of changes going into next week or you're going to have an upset. And I think the one thing we haven't had so far this year, we thought Mississippi State and LSU might have been that, right? But we haven't had that that just massive, massive upset that just rocks the whole college football world. Now, maybe you had a little taste of that last week when Michigan State beat Northwestern. But the reality of Northwestern is, even though their ranking was high and their path to making the playoff was clear as an undefeated team that could potentially win the Big Ten Championship. They would have qualified for the playoff. I don't think anybody who had watched Northwestern play really believed that they were the same caliber team as an Alabama, a Clemson, a Notre Dame, an Ohio State. And a lot of the talk about Northwestern started happening really because the potential was there and is still there, and we'll get to that here in a minute, for Ohio State to not play enough games to qualify for the Big Ten Championship game, and then that brings into question whether or not the playoff committee will take them. We'll explore that thought here in just a few minutes, but that's the theme of the week is ranked teams, highly ranked teams, going on the road uh, against unranked opponents. So we will start with those Ohio State Buckeyes who will go all the way over to East Lansing, Michigan, to take on Michigan State. That's a noon kickoff on ABC. There's been a lot of talk. Obviously, Ohio State, Ryan Day, sick last week, got COVID, tested positive on Friday morning. The story story came out Friday morning. He wasn't going to be traveling to Illinois with the team. By Friday night, the game was off, and the season for Ohio State was in question. Apparently, at this point, and I'm recording just for you know full disclosure here, recording on Wednesday afternoon, at this point, the game is still on. So Ohio State has had two games canceled. Uh, which leaves six regular season games left. They have two games left in this season. So they've played four. They're 4-0, and had two games canceled. They have Michigan State this weekend, and then they play Michigan next weekend. So Ohio State needs to not only play both of those games, but win both of those games, make the Big Ten Championship game, destroy Northwestern or Wisconsin, whoever they play there, and then move on to the college football playoff. That is That is the path for the Ohio State Buckeyes. But it starts going to Michigan State, and Michigan State, as we've already talked about, they upset Michigan earlier in the season. They upset Indiana just this past weekend. Or, sorry, Northwestern just this past weekend. You know, Michigan State, they've only got a couple of wins, but their couple of wins were in big games. So it will be interesting to see if Michigan State can show up again. For those who don't know, Mel Tucker, the former Georgia defensive coordinator who left after the 2018 season to go out to Colorado to be their head coach, well, Mike D'Antoni, after last year uh, at Michigan State, he 
resigned really late after the season. I think it was actually right before signing day. And Michigan State went and took Tucker from uh, from Colorado. So it's his first year, but frankly, he didn't have a full recruiting cycle to be able to bring in anybody. D'Antoni left this he left the team in a really bad spot. So uh, Mel Tucker, you may look at the record and say, well, he's only won two games this year. He's not doing a very good job. He's doing a remarkable job just to have kept that team together with everything that the Big Ten's been through, the, everything the Michigan State went through. Obviously, any coach that's having any sort of success in this year deserves a lot of credit for keeping this team together because there's obviously a lot of teams that haven't had a lot of success. Teams like South Carolina that only have a couple of wins and they've got players quitting every other day. Michigan State doesn't have that happening. So it will be very, very interesting to see if Ohio State can just continue to roll. You know, it's been a choppy season for everybody, but so much more for the Buckeyes. Um, and as, as the elite team in college football coming out of the Big Ten and the Pac-10, or Pac-12, excuse me, you really have to wonder if at some point, though, all these stops and starts, do all the, t- the testing and the positive tests and all that, does it finally come around and bite Ohio State? Um, I don't think so. I, I think if they're able to play these two games, they'll end up beating Michigan State, and I think, that of course, they'll beat Michigan because Michigan is a complete and total dumpster fire right now. However, if they were going to get surprised in one of the games, it's going to be this one. They're going to beat Michigan by 1,000 next week if that game's played. So Ohio State, could they be looking ahead to Michigan a little bit? I think the biggest help that Ohio State has this week is the fact that Michigan State beat Northwestern last week. So I don't think the Buckeyes will be taken off guard. I don't think they'll be getting ready to sleepwalk through this game. I think Ohio State will take care of business. The other game at noon that you want to keep an eye on is on ESPN. Number five, Texas A&M on the road at Auburn. Auburn did not show up for the Iron Bowl, period. They played amazing against LSU a few weeks ago. They played very, very poorly against Alabama. Obviously, early in the year, they nearly lost to Arkansas. They got run by Georgia. Um, They played pretty well against Kentucky. This is a Jekyll and Hyde team. If Auburn comes out and plays their best in Auburn, then Texas A&M could have a game on their hands. Because the flip side is Texas A&M did not look very good against LSU last week. The, The defense looked good. But it's that old question of was that good defense from Texas A&M or was that just really bad offense from LSU? But that game was going on at the same time as the Georgia game, so I can't say that I saw a lot of it live. Um, but I did, it, it for whatever reason, it was about 30 or 45 minutes behind the Georgia game. So when the dogs finished up, I did turn over there and watch it, and it just it just felt like a sleepy environment. It, it, it felt like kind of like the Kentucky-Georgia game where it seemed like both teams were just pretty comfortable with, like, just leaving, uh, maybe not even playing to start with. But once Texas A&M had the lead, there wasn't a whole lot of fight coming out of LSU, which is just insane, given that they are LSU. Um, but this could be a test for A&M to see if they can go on the road at Auburn and just and win, and win convincingly. Um, last year, uh, Bo Nix and Auburn beat Texas A&M in College Station. Obviously, this is a different Texas A&M team. But Bo Nix is the same Bo Nix because I think he had like 100 yards uh, passing in that game last year. Uh, But Auburn won, and so that's all that mattered. At 3.30, there's two games to keep an eye on. Uh, Traditional rivalry in the SEC is number six Florida goes on the road to take on Tennessee. That's the CBS 3.30 game. Now, that is not the Gary and 
the Gary Danielson game, the main game, because we have another one coming up on CBS. This is a doubleheader week for CBS. So the CBS B team will be in Knoxville. I don't think there's any chance this game is close. I think Florida is going to get Jeremy Pruitt fired. Um, that's that's it. I don't think there's anything else that needs to be said about that. I think Florida's going to roll. Uh, they have LSU next week and then Alabama the week after. So Florida beats Tennessee on Saturday, which I fully expect them to do again probably by about 40 points. Then Florida will have qualified for the SEC championship game, and the very, very slim hopes that Georgia had of sneaking in that game will be completely gone. The bigger story in this game is actually not the team that's alive for the college football playoff and who will be clinching the SEC East on Saturday. The biggest story in this game is Tennessee. And what will they do with Jeremy Pruitt after this drubbing? Um, It's all they're going to talk about in the second half of this game. And if you see a Tennessee team in this game, or, you know, the stadium is, this is the one game this year that I wish there was a full house for. Not, that's not a political thing. It's not because I don't believe in the virus. Only because when Florida beats the snot out of Tennessee, it would be so fun to see how empty that building got really, really quickly. But this game and Pruitt's future is going to hang on the way the players carry themselves in this game. If they just look like they've given up, I think Jeremy Pruitt's going to lose his job on Sunday. I really, really do. Um, The other game that I will try to convince you to at least kind of keep an eye on is is one of the only, if maybe actually the only, top 25 matchup this week, number 12, Indiana on the road at Wisconsin. Now, Michael Penix Jr., the great quarterback for Indiana, is out. He's not going to be playing in this game. So Indiana is not the number 12 team in the country without Penix. If you remember, he threw for like 500 yards against Ohio State. He's a special player, but he hurt his knee, and he's done for the year. Uh, I would expect Wisconsin to be able to win this game, but that game is on at the same time as Florida-Tennessee over on ABC. So keep an eye on that one, and if you get really bored with the Florida-Tennessee game because of all of Florida's points, and all the Kyle to Kyle talk, uh, and if you just can't stand to listen to them talking anymore about whether Jeremy Pruitt's going to get fired, that's at least an option at 3.30 on ABC. The good news is the dogs play at four, so you really won't have to worry about either one of those games. Uh, Georgia hosts Vanderbilt, the last home game of the season. It's a four o'clock kick on the SEC Network. We'll talk a little bit more about that game in just a moment. Uh, And then that leads us into the night. So the theme from the day remains the same. You got number three Clemson on the road at Virginia Tech, 730 kick on ABC. I assume that that is the Kirk Herbstreet, uh, Chris Fowler game of the week situation. Um, Same question for Clemson. Now, Clemson took out all of their hate and all of their frustration and all of their anger. They took it all out last week. Um, Everything that had happened with Florida State, they just, they just took all of their frustrations out on Pitt. And they just, poor Pitt. Can we just, one moment of silence for the Pitt Panthers who took the entire wrath of the Clemson Tigers football team for Trevor Lawrence being out and then multiple games getting canceled and the loss to Notre Dame. All of it was just piled up on Pitt last week. So one moment of silence for Pitt. Ha ha. Too bad you're Pitt. So, Clemson destroyed Pitt last week. I'd, it'll be interesting to see if they can come back and play at that level again. Virginia Tech is a fine team. They're not very good. Um, you know, There's no reason that Clemson shouldn't win this game by three touchdowns, but there is something to be said 
for being a great team and being able to consistently beat teams that you're better than um, and beat them convincingly. So is this a scare game for Clemson? Maybe, but I don't think so. I think Clemson gets the job done. It leads into the 8 o'clock kickoffs. There's two games we'll talk about. Number one is number one, Alabama on the road at LSU. CBS uh, got their dream. They got to put this game in prime time, um, even though they put the Alabama-Georgia game in prime time earlier in this year, and they're usually only allowed one. Pretty much this year's a wash. Nobody cares what anybody does at this point. So the tide on the road at LSU. The LSU team that we've seen the last few weeks, the one that just looked pathetic against Auburn and looked like they didn't care at all against Texas A&M. Um, if there's any pride left in the LSU program, you'll see it in this game. Now, it's not going to matter. Alabama's going to win the game. The question is, much like the Tennessee-Florida game, is there any fight at all left in LSU? From the coaches to the players, it's at LSU. I mean, 20,000 people in Death Valley should matter. Um, my guess is it's not going to matter a lot. I don't think LSU's got anything left. I think their guys are done. And I think you're going to see Alabama, again, take out some of their frustration, take out some of their anger, and just really lay it on LSU. Uh, the other game that I wanted to mention at 8 o'clock, Baylor on the road at number 11, Oklahoma. That game is on Fox. Now, you might be wondering why in the world are you talking about Baylor and Oklahoma? Well, Oklahoma has a unique coaching situation happening. Uh, so you're going to have a coach on the sideline that has led Oklahoma to the college football playoff and has actually won a national championship. And, of course, I'm not talking about Lincoln Riley. There have been positive tests amongst the Oklahoma coaches this week. So Bob Stoops, the former longtime head coach of the Oklahoma Sooners who won a national championship with the Sooners in 2000 is going to be on the sideline Saturday assisting uh, in a coaching role for Lincoln Riley in this game. So I don't know that there's been a lot of situations or maybe ever been a situation where two different coaches uh, who have made the college football playoff have been on the same sideline coaching together. In fact, I feel pretty confident to say that they have not. That has not happened. Um, but it will happen on Saturday night as Oklahoma tries to continue, much like Georgia. You know, Oklahoma's losses came early in the season, but they're ranked number 11 now. They're kind of getting back into that point. They are probably going to end up winning the Big 12 again, which just says a lot about Lincoln Riley. His ability to hold that program together even after the struggles, even after the, the Kansas State game and all of the things that they faced early in the year, for Oklahoma to be able to just continue, they beat Texas, they beat Oklahoma State, now they're on the path to get back. They're going to play Iowa State most likely in the Big 12 championship game and maybe end up in the New Year's Six again. And while that's not necessarily meeting the expectations for that fan base, I mean, if you're at Oklahoma, much like if you're at Georgia at this point, it's college football playoff or it's not been a successful season. If your down year for Oklahoma is winning the Big 12 and going to the New Year's Six, I think you're going to have to take that, especially given the fact that you lost the games you lost so early in the year. So the only team that's in action this week in the top seven that's playing at home is Notre Dame. They play Syracuse at home, but going to need some road warriors happening uh, for the big teams in college football this weekend. It will be interesting. You know, everybody's game planning. Okay, if this team wins this game and this game and this game, then they're in the playoff. If this team doesn't get to play this game, then they're out or are they out or 
there's so much stuff being talked about right now. But more often than not, the college football playoff works itself out. And by the time you get to Selection Sunday, two weeks from this Sunday, you will most likely know who the four teams are. Maybe number five will have a little bit of an argument. They usually do. But it's not going to be as convoluted and crazy as it feels like it is going to be. It just always works itself out. And this may be a weekend with all of these ranked teams going on the road. Um, this may be a weekend where we see it work itself out. It might be surprising. It might be shocking. But it's still going to end up working itself out. So the game that I want to talk about now is a game that's actually not happening. Michigan and Maryland has already been canceled because of testing issues or COVID issues inside the Michigan program. And as I said a moment ago, Ohio State cannot afford to not play Michigan. Um, so it is going to be very, very interesting to see how the next 10 days go for Michigan. What role the Big Ten plays in trying to push Michigan towards playing. We'll have to see. At this point, there's not even any clear indication how many positive tests they've had, just that this game is off and that they don't know right now. Um, so I don't really know what's going to happen. I, I, I have a hard time. I really have a hard time. The, the Big Ten put the rule in place that if you don't play six games, you cannot be eligible for the Big Ten championship game. That They did that. Nobody with the college football playoff has any oversight on that. No other conference made them. They made that decision. And in a year like this, are you really going to force Michigan to go out there just to let Ohio State get a game in? Where's the integrity in that? You know, the Big Ten fancies themselves as the conscience of college football, the leaders of college football, on the field, off the field, blah, 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 blah. But the reality of the Big Ten is they have been the joke of college football this year because the decision that they made when they made it early in the season to cancel, uh, then to you know have the, the, the idiotic talk of maybe playing in the spring, essentially having two college football seasons in 10 months, which is insane when the argument was about player safety. Then they jumped in late forced an eight-game season in there with little or zero wiggle room, and then created this rule that as soon as you heard it, you knew they're going to regret that. Now, how much they regret it is going to depend on if this Ohio State-Michigan game gets played next weekend. Because if Ohio State ends up 5-0, and missing the Big Ten championship game because of a rule the Big Ten put in place, the committee, they have to look at what's actually happened. And no matter how much talk there will be in that room, there will be a Big Ten champion that is crowned in Indianapolis on the 19th. So you're going to have a Big Ten champion, and then you're going to have an undefeated Ohio State team, and the committee's supposed to take championships into account. So would it be the most offensive thing in the world for the committee to look and say, listen, this is a crazy year. There's extenuating circumstances. We've watched Ohio State enough to feel like they are the one of the best four teams. And frankly, if that's the logic, I can't argue with it. I've watched Ohio State enough to know that they're one of the best four teams. However, there has to be something said for earning it. And whether the eye test shows us that Ohio State is one of the best four teams or not, 
The, the reality is how do you give a team an opportunity to win a national championship by winning seven games? Ohio State, in this scenario, and we don't even know if this is going to be the scenario, but there is a scenario where Ohio State is seven, or I guess maybe they would be 6-0 and because they would get to play somebody uh, on Big Ten championship weekend, even if they're not eligible for the title game. So theoretically, they would get a game in that weekend. So they'd be 6-0 and going into the playoff with a chance to be 8-0 and in winning the national championship. I mean, 8-0 and national champion sounds like something you'd get in like 1927. So I don't know. I think the committee is probably hoping beyond hope that Michigan finds a way to drag enough players out on that field to be able to get the butt whooping they got coming to them, no matter how many players they have, um, just so the, the committee doesn't have to make this decision. Uh, you're not going to get anybody connected to the college football playoff to, to talk about any kind of what-if scenarios to this extent because – the reality is they hope they never have to make that decision because if you've got, you know, a one-loss Big Ten champion, we'll call them Wisconsin just for fun, you've got a one-loss Wisconsin team sitting there as the Big Ten champion, you've got a 6-0 and non-champion in Ohio State sitting there, I, I don't know, you know, and then you then there's the other factors, you know, if Florida beats Alabama, then both of those teams are in. If Clemson beats Notre Dame, both of those teams are in, I think. Now, I don't think Alabama is going to lose to Florida, but if Florida wins that game, they have to both get in, right? So it's very, very messy, and the controversy, even though I think that it will usually work itself out because that's what we've seen typically is that it works itself out, this year could be the messiest, though, because – it's not about you're not comparing apples to apples. You know, there have been years where you had the debate, okay, what's more important, a good win or a bad loss? You know, the year that Ohio State was the Big Ten champion, but they had lost by like 25 points on the road at Purdue, and a Purdue team that, if I remember correctly, didn't even make a bowl game that year. So you have, you've had to consider situations like that, but you've never had the committee faced with the situation that they could potentially be faced in this year where you have – a one-loss Clemson team that avenged their only loss, a one-loss Notre Dame team who ran the table in the regular season and beat the only team to beat them, an Alabama team that has looked like the best team all year long, and a Florida team that has really grown into itself and seems like they're playing at a really high level. And then you have an undefeated Cincinnati team. You have a one-loss Texas A&M who beat one of the teams in this scenario that might actually be in the playoff and the eventual SEC champion lost to the team that's in the championship game against them, this could be the year where it gets really, really, really messy. Or you could have a couple teams lose on Saturday and then it all works itself out in the end. But the biggest piece of all this, the biggest question mark in all of this is it's so crazy. I guess it's not crazy in this season, but it's not about at this point whether or not Ohio State looks good in beating Michigan State and Michigan, it's just whether or not they get to play the game. And because that's in question, I almost feel like if the games get played, you look past Ohio State's performance because the thing that you're kind of considering in your mind right now is, well, what if they don't play? 
And if you answer that question, then it's like, oh, well, okay, they beat Michigan State by seven and they beat Michigan by 21. Is that impressive? And then you look at their whole body of work and you say, is this a playoff team? Have they earned it? I mean, what would be more impressive in that situation? A 9-0 and Ohio State team that's won the Big Ten or a 9-1 and Texas A&M team that only loss came to Alabama, who would presumably be the number one team in the country. I know what the committee would do. Ohio State's in, Texas A&M is out, and everybody goes home. I just think there's a legitimate question. And we talked about it from the beginning of the year, playing only conference schedules, not having those crossover games to really know who's better than who, you know, playing different numbers of games. Everything is jacked up this year, and it's all going to be up to those 12 people in the room that are making the decision on the committee. And I don't think there's any chance that they will be able to do something that not only satisfies everybody, because you never satisfy everybody, but they're, this year more than any year, they're really going to have to explain the thought process. And I think whatever they say, as long as it logically makes sense, we're going to have to accept it. Because you can also do it this way. If Texas A&M and Ohio State played, who would you expect to win? For me, it would be Ohio State. But if Cincinnati and Georgia played, which we potentially may see that in a New Year's Six game, who would you expect to win? Georgia. So would you rank Georgia higher than Cincinnati because you think on a field that they would beat them? Well, no, because rankings are about results, right? And Cincinnati's undefeated and Georgia's lost two games. So it really is hard to try to decide, okay, am I talking about what I think would happen if these two teams play, or am I just assessing the resumes? And that's where, in a normal year, we have so much more data that it helps the committee make that decision. And this year, with limited data, the committee's really got a tough job on their hands. And so it'll be interesting to see if there's any upsets this week, but also if there's not, and we stay like this until championship weekend, it's going to be really, really interesting because, you know, Texas A&M doesn't have a game on the 19th. They'll be done. And so it's going to be interesting to see how all of this shakes out. And if you're the committee, you're hoping for two things. You're hoping that Texas A&M loses to Auburn or loses one of the last two games. And you hope that Ohio State gets to play their last two games because then you basically bring it down to, okay, does Florida beat Alabama? Because if they don't, they're out. They've got two losses, they're out. So Alabama's in. Does Notre Dame beat Clemson? Well, if Notre Dame beats Clemson for a second time, Clemson's out. Notre Dame's in. An undefeated Ohio State team as a Big Ten champion, they're in. And now you're talking about the fourth spot, which you could have Texas A&M sitting there to move up to four at 9-1 and one in the SEC. Or do you start thinking about a Big 12 champion, Oklahoma? Would a USC, if they're undefeated coming out of the Pac-12, get any attention? Do you move Cincinnati if they're undefeated into that fourth spot? So the fourth spot to me, or, or, or kind of who fills in number four in that scenario matters a lot less because essentially all you're doing is deciding who is going to get murdered by Alabama. That's, that's the question, right? But I think what's most likely going to happen is Clemson beats Notre Dame. They both go, you got Alabama in and you got Ohio State in. As I've said, I think that's the most likely scenario. I think most people would tell you that's the most likely scenario. The fly in the ointment is if Florida beats 
Alabama, and if Ohio State can't play all their games. So that was an extended viewing guide, and we talked a little bit of college football playoff as well. Let's turn our attention very, very quickly to the Georgia-Vandy game and talk a little bit about what we can expect Saturday. It's hard to hate Vandy, and I I can't get myself worked up enough to actually tell you that this is an enemy segment. So we'll just move on to kind of talking about the game a little bit. But I really want to start with what's going on at Vandy right now. Um, The one of the big storylines coming into this year with the COVID situation that the country is experiencing with the modified season in college football, you know, with the fact that you can't have fans in the stands, so the revenue that is usually produced by college football wasn't going to be there for the any program, whether you're going to normally have 80 or 90 or 100,000 fans, or if you're like Vandy and on a good day you have 40,000. Um, it, it all added up to would we see a different perspective when it comes to coaching hot seats? You have guys like Gus Malzahn who go on and off the hot seat like it's musical chairs, right? I mean, it is week to week. The Auburn fans love him one week, and they hate him, and they want him to die the next week. And after that performance at Alabama, I would imagine most Auburn fans are on the hate him and want to die time. But if he comes out this week, and it's a gust thing to do, come out this week, beat A&M, oh, we love him again. I mean, and that's, that's the story of Gus, but that's also, that's really the theme of college football, right? You have these coaches that are just kind of at these tweener programs, not that Auburn's a tweener program, but one of those programs that you don't necessarily get to go into every season with a championship or bust mentality, but you've been good enough for long enough that you really have a hard time every single time you lose. We've seen coaching changes this year that were surprising. A lot of people were surprised that South Carolina went ahead in the season and pulled the trigger on Will Muschamp. We talked earlier in the podcast about the fact that does Jeremy Pruitt end up getting fired this weekend after Florida decimates Tennessee the way I think they will. The surprise for me was Derek Mason. Derek Mason got fired last Sunday afternoon. And for a school like Vanderbilt, who doesn't pretend to be, I mean, they're in the SEC because they get to collect a big check from the conference every couple of, or every year when it comes time for the TV rights money to be handed out. But Vanderbilt doesn't pretend that they're Georgia or Alabama or Florida and how much they care about athletics. They don't try to be competitive in the SEC. They don't want to be a laughing stock, and this year they're 0-8. But going 0-8 or 0-10 at Vanderbilt this year in the middle of a pandemic, there's not a fan base to get mad and demand Derek Mason's job. So I was very, very surprised that Vandy moved on from Derek Mason. In general, I can't believe they did it during the season, and I really can't believe they did it one day after Sarah Fuller made her much-heralded debut last week against Missouri uh, with that kickoff in the second half. Now, I'm not even going to touch that whole issue. I'm going to talk about it a little bit, but my personal opinions don't matter at all. Um, but I just can't believe they fired her in that situation. So for the second straight week, Georgia's going to be playing a team whose coach has gotten fired during the season, during a pandemic, when attendance and revenue and everything else is is down. Uh, these these teams, 
don't seem to be deterred by the lack of revenue, by the lack of attendance, by the lack of, you know, just they, they are willing to take the PR hit and go ahead and make their same decision that they would in a non-COVID season. I don't know if that's commendable or not. I do know a lot of people before the season were asking the question, would we see a different approach? And there hasn't been as much in-season firing, but it tells me that we're about to start cooking. There's going to be programs, now that you've gotten to the end of this long, arduous process, all year, no spring practice, summer start and stop, you know, season finally starting, testing and testing and testing and testing. Once the end of that road is clear, you have an athletic director sit in their office and have the same conversations they always do. Do we want to get rid of our coach? And when you talk about guys like Jim Harbaugh, when you talk about Jeremy Pruitt, when you talk about um, Tom Herman at Texas, at some point when USC loses because they're not very good, you're going to talk about Clay Helton. You know, when you're talking about these guys, I, I think we're going to see some head roll. And I don't think I thought that just even three or four weeks ago. But South Carolina started it. Vanderbilt, of all places, has continued it. And I think they've really – it's going to get to the tipping point to where we're going to see a lot of coaches get fired, and I, I don't think most people expected that. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Sarah Fuller situation. For the people who may not be aware, Sarah Fuller is the goalkeeper on the women's Vanderbilt soccer team. They won the SEC championship. She was already in the testing protocol. Vandy has had some issues over the last couple of weeks with positive COVID tests, just like so many schools have, and they were very close last week to not being able to field the team. The way they filled a team last week was they brought her in because she had already been in the testing protocols and all of that. They brought her in to kick. Now, Vanderbilt got shut out by Missouri last week in impressive fashion. Um, they never even got into like legitimate field goal range, and the only thing that Sarah Fuller got to do was kick off in the second half and it was kind of a squib kick. There's a lot of people who have strong opinions about whether or not um, she was supposed to do that or whether or not kicking the ball 40 yards is as much as she was able to do. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen her at practice. I don't know what the coach has told her. And I'll be honest, I haven't heard anybody speak at a press conference or anything else like that. So I don't know what she was supposed to do. I don't know how good she actually is. You know, the SEC came out this week and named her Special Teams Player of the Week, which, of course, was essentially just gaslighting all the people that thought it was a PR stunt from the beginning. Um, but then the announcement came down on Monday that Sarah Fuller was going to be the place kicker for Vandy against Georgia this weekend. Now, apparently, if you believe reports out of the Vanderbilt kind of community, which I read on the UGA message boards, there was a player revolt, or there has been a player revolt. There is a student at Vanderbilt who was a kicker who has one year of le eligibility left who could potentially be available for Vandy. And, and a report I read today is that he is going through the protocols and hopes to be cleared by Saturday. Um, there's a lot of initial testing that has to be done before you can't just take one test and get in and, and play. So you have to have so many negative tests over a period of time before you're able to kind of join the bubble, as it were, of the players on the team. So the reason Vandy went with Fuller last week was because since she had been a part of the SEC soccer championship, she had already been in all of those testing protocols. They could get her in quicker. 
Now, with the extra week now to prepare, apparently the Vandy players were very upset that the interim coach there, and if I told you I knew his name, I'd be lying to you, that the interim coach came out and said that he that she was going to be the one kicking against Georgia this weekend. Now, if they didn't score on Missouri, I don't know that you can feel too comfortable about them scoring against Georgia, but we'll see. But they apparently the game was in doubt, and it's still in doubt. So I said that Georgia's playing Vanderbilt at 4 o'clock on Saturday on the SEC Network. That's as of 4.30 p.m. on Wednesday afternoon, and in an hour or two that may change because Vandy's got COVID issues, and apparently now they have player opt-out issues with some of their players just being very upset and feeling like the team is not playing the players that give them the best chance to win, that they are more at this point trying to make a social statement. Now, whatever you think about that, congratulations, good for you. Um, what I will say is, from a player standpoint, if I'm at practice, and if and I don't know that any of this is true, so just don't don't start you know canceling me, please. But at practice, the players see Sarah Fuller kick. If they know that she can't make a 20-yard field goal and that she can't kick the ball even down to the opponent's 15 or 10 on a kickoff. And they also know that they have this other guy who presumably is a better kicker because at some point he was actually the kicker at Vanderbilt who's still in grad school there and has a year of eligibility left. And if the coaching staff that's in place is making the decision that we're going to go with the less talented person because we like the attention or because we're trying to make a social statement or because we're trying to, I don't know what, then if I'm a player on that team, I understand why you can get upset. Now, if you're not a player on that team, shut up. Because everybody's got opinions about everything, and that's fine. But I'm not sure that my opinion on that situation matters at all. I think the only people who get to have a valid opinion in this situation should be the other players that have been going through practices all these weeks and who, like, quite frankly, they're going to get on a plane or a bus. I don't know how they're coming to Athens. They are quite literally coming to get killed. They know that. They know they're not going to beat Georgia. They couldn't beat Missouri. Missouri's a, a decent team, but they're not Georgia. Georgia's been playing at the level they've been playing at. You're going to see Stetson Bennett maybe after halftime in this game. Maybe Carson Beck. I don't know. But this is not going to be a competitive game, and if you don't think the Vandy players know that, you're kidding yourself. And so, essentially, whether it's coming from the athletic department or the, the interim head coach, essentially, you have the coach saying, hey, guys, we're not going to win anyway. Let's put the girl out there. Now, I'm not saying that's what's happening, but if that's the way the players feel, I completely understand that. And I don't know if that's the real motivation. There could be things, you know, in, in this COVID year, there's so little real information. There's a lot of conjecture, just like with the Georgia quarterback situation all year. Everybody had a really strong opinion without knowing anything. And this is a similar situation. So maybe it's that there's nobody else that has cleared the protocol. Maybe the guy that was a grad student that could kick Maybe he tested positive and he's out. We don't know. But at this point, it's all up in the air. And the Vandy site reported on Wednesday morning that it looked like the game was still on for now. But that's that's what's coming to Athens Saturday night. You've got a team that's 0-8, just fired their coach during a pandemic. And they have a revolt going on on the team because of allowing a girl to play. Kirby Smart's getting asked at the press conference on Monday 
how the team will handle it if there is a kick return and Sarah Fuller is on the field. We've completely jumped a shark here, folks. Um, I, I don't want to be socially correct or incorrect. I'll just say this. If the Vandy program feels comfortable putting her on the field, then equality means treating everybody the same. Now, do I think it would be fair for one of Georgia's players to seek her out and try to hurt her? Of course not. But if she's going to make a tackle and we make a block, I also don't think we should throw that person in jail. So Georgia's going to win this game by $1 million. That's a, That's a direct fact. I, I give you my word on that. The problem is, much like the South Carolina game, nothing that happens will really mean that much because it's going to be a lot more about Vandy's problems than Georgia's successes. So we'll cut it off there. We'll keep the podcast a little shorter this week. Thank you so much for listening. As always, go dogs.